0: Our Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we open your Word, that uh, your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts so that we can see the truth of your message. And I pray that our hearts would be receptive to hear from you as we, as we study your Word. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So before we get started today, I do want to... Um, give a, uh, I don't know what this is, a warning maybe? There's uh, this message from the prophet today is a message that uh, when you, once you've heard it, there's kind of two ways that you can feel about it at the end. Uh, One is that you can feel challenged and maybe convicted and feel like uh, inspired maybe to, to do something about this message, and the other possibility is that you can just feel like Amos is condemning you, and that you're guilty, and feel down about the whole thing, and, uh, and I want to challenge you to come at this with an open mind and an open heart, and try to see the challenge and the conviction in this, rather than the uh, criticism and condemnation, so... So this is a a very uh, challenging message that the prophet has here. The people of his own day uh, were not happy to hear it at all. But I hope that we will respond uh, well to the message of the prophet. So um, this is week three of our series from the book of Amos. Uh, And let me give just a quick background review here. Amos was a farmer. He was not a preacher. Um, He was living in in the nation of Judah when God called him to be his spokesman and bring his message to God's people. So Amos went and uh, obeyed God's call and preached in the neighboring nation of Israel. See, the Jews at this time were uh, in two kingdoms. They had split uh, between Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And although Amos was from Judah, he uh, did most of his ministry in the nation of Israel. And the key image that illustrates the main idea of the book is the picture of a plumb line. And I have my plumb line here. This is a, uh, a plumb bob on the bottom and then a plumb line that it hangs from. And this thing is a tool that is used in, uh, in carpentry and in masonry that... Uh, I gave a, a fairly full explanation of the plumb bob and its, and its uh, meaning and all that uh, the last time I preached on Amos. So if you want the full explanation, uh, you can find that message online. But for now, let me just summarize that uh, the key purpose of the plumb line is that you hold it up to a wall to see whether the wall is straight up and down or not. You see, sometimes the, the ground where your wall is being built or even the floor in a building where you're where your wall is, is not perfectly level and flat. So you can't just measure from the floor to see whether your wall is straight. You need uh, something that really is straight up and down. And a plumb line always hangs perfectly straight up and down. So you can hold that up to your wall and measure and see whether your line or whether your wall is true vertical. So here is how the plumb line comes up in the book of Amos. Uh, Amos is describing a vision that he had uh, from God. It says, This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. So God is telling his people that he is coming to judge them, to measure whether they are living up to the standard of the plumb line. Are they straight up and down, or have they started to tilt away from the standard that God taught them and away from God's laws about how to treat one another and how to worship him properly? And of course, uh, the reason why God is sending Amos is to let the people know that they have drifted away from his standards and from his law and that they are far from straight up and down and God is warning them that disaster is coming on them soon. And so God wants to warn them so that they can have a chance to repent and avoid the disaster. Now today, we're going to look at one of the main themes of the prophecy, which is the false piece of ritual, of religious ritual. You see, the Jewish people in Amos' day, they had not abandoned the worship of God. When we think about people who are are far from God and people that God is not pleased with, uh, we think of people who are very irreligious, right? Uh, People who reject God and his standards entirely. In our own day, we would say, back, back then they didn't uh, really do this, but in our own day, people would be atheists, and they would say, oh, God doesn't even exist. Um, back then, everybody believed in some kind of supernaturals, but in our day, people say, no, there is no God, and, uh, or at least they'd say, uh, whatever, if there might be a God, but it doesn't matter, and I'm going to live my life the way I want to, and God has no part in it. And these would be people who don't go to church, they don't read their Bible, they're not practicing religion. Those are the people that we think of as being far from God. And no doubt, people like that are far from God and God is not pleased with them. But that's not the kind of people that God sent Amos to confront. The people God condemns through Amos are, in fact, very religious. They're celebrating the religious festivals that are laid out for them in the Bible. They are keeping the Sabbath. They are bringing sacrifices to God. They are singing songs of worship. They're fasting and praying. And they're not doing all this in some man-made religion, worshiping some false god or an idol or something. They are following the instructions laid out for them in the the Bible, they're following Judaism, the religion that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. But here is the message that Amos brings to them. Amos chapter five, starting with verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. You see, these people thought that they were pleasing to God because of their religious activities. They believed that they were following God's instructions, that they were uh, worshiping the one true God and not the false gods of the nations around them, and so God should be pleased with them. But they were very far from the truth. God hated and despised their religious activities. They were a stench to him, and he called their worship music noise. Why? What was the problem? Were they singing the wrong kind of songs? Uh, Were they bringing the wrong kind of sacrifices? That doesn't really seem to be the problem. He refers to their sacrifices as choice offerings. And there's no indications that their songs were just too repetitive and God just got tired of hearing the same thing over and over, or the, the lyrics didn't have enough good theology in them. That's not the problem. What does God say about their their worship? Here in that passage we just read, the very next verse there, chapter 5 says, But let justice roll on like a river, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. See, that's what's missing for these people. The main problem with their worship wasn't really a problem with their worship at all. It was a lack of justice and righteousness. And justice and righteousness are really not about how we are worshiping when we assemble together and do religious things. They're about how we are behaving when we're not engaged in religious activities. It's not mainly a problem with the way that the people were conducting their religious meetings. It's about how they live when they go home. They are not living with justice and righteousness, and this passage here in, in Amos 5 doesn't really go into detail about exactly what the, the lack of justice and righteousness uh, uh, consisted of. But he does talk about it in several other places in Amos. He describes more what it was missing. Here in, uh, he says, You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. So here's the first indication of what was the injustice in their society. And in this case, he mentions the taxes that they had put on the poor see, in Amos' day, they were unjust taxes that were being placed on them. And now, here's where we, we've got a little bit of a, a difficult uh, thing to apply this, right? Because tax policies are a little beyond what most of us uh, feel that we have much influence over. But, um, you know, and, and it's also not clear exactly what in our own day would constitute an unjust tax on the poor. We know that they were doing it in, in Amos' day. But here's what we can say. We can say that the people of God must always oppose taxing the poor in a way that causes them to suffer while the rich and the middle class build nice homes for themselves and enjoy the fruit and wine from their lush vineyards. So how exactly does that work out in modern policy? I'm not sure, but what I am sure of is that a concern for the poor and a concern that they are not being overly and unfairly taxed should be a priority in our thinking. But like I said, how many of us are really involved in writing the tax codes? I mean, is this this is something that people far away in Washington do, uh, or or in Juneau or something? And 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 what are we supposed to? do about it. We are powerless to influence that. But no, we're not quite powerless. We don't have a lot of power. Uh, We don't have a lot of influence, but we do have some. So I think an application right away here is that we should be advocates for the poor. As much as we can, let us see to it that our own society does not fall into the sin Of Amos's day. Amos goes on here and says, For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So the second sin, in addition to taxes against the poor, is that they are not being treated fairly in the courts the wealthy pay bribes and pervert justice at the expense of the poor. So is that still a problem in our own society? Are the poor treated differently in the courts than the rich? I say it's still a problem, though uh, I admit to what extent it is uh, is a matter of debate. <laughs> we could probably have differing opinions about that, but, but the poor are treated differently in the courts. And again, my point here is not to call out a particular unjust policy or practice in our own society, what exactly, which law is bad, um, but just to call on the people of God to be advocates for the poor and the powerless, and to do whatever we can to ensure that they are treated fairly. So. Why is God unhappy with the worship that his people are bringing him? Why does he see their religious events as a stench and want their singing to stop? Because they are oppressing the poor and denying justice to the powerless. This comes up again in chapter 8, where he says, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? So you see the hypocrisy really clearly in this verse, right? They're unwilling to conduct business on the Sabbath. They're impatiently waiting for the Sabbath to end so that they can follow the rules and make sure that they are not breaking their religious rules. But at the same time, It says they are trampling the needy and doing away with the poor. They're following the religious rules, but they are abusing social justice. The next verse describes the business dealings that they do after they have dutifully waited for the end of the Sabbath. Then they are skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. You see, they're observing the rules of religious observance, but not the rules of honesty and fair dealings. And who are the victims of their dishonesty? It's the poor and the needy that they're cheating. Next verse says, The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? Now that is a chilling statement. God has sworn that he will never forget what these people have done as they have cheated the poor and the needy. Do you get the picture that this is not a small thing to God? God cares how we treat the powerless, the poor, and the needy. He cares more about it than he cares about how often you come here and sing songs to worship him. He cares about it more than he cares about how biblical your theology is. He cares about how you treat the poor and needy more than he cares about the sacrifices you bring or what kind of checks you put in the offering box. God has no regard for your religious practices. In fact, he hates and despises your religious practices unless you're acting in the cause of justice and righteousness. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. So here's where I tend to go and where my thinking tends to go when I'm confronted with this kind of a thing. Because this comes up in the Bible fairly often. Uh, so, so when I hear this kind of thing, this is what I, I tend to think. And I bet some of you are thinking something similar. You're thinking, but I actually don't oppress the poor. Uh, I don't trample on the needy. Uh, and, and doubtless, there are unscrupulous people out there who are doing bad things that are, um, that are making things hard for, for others, uh, but I'm not doing those things. And, and a lot of the things we hear about in the Bible regarding oppressing the poor and things like withholding wages from the workers on your farm or, or using dishonest scales or that kind of thing. And, and, and I don't even have a farm. <laughs> um, so, and, and I'm not involved in buying and selling where I've got scales that I might put my thumb on or have different weights or something. Um, and, and, and the few times where this kind of thing might come up in my life... Um, I do uh, pay people for the work that they do for me. So, uh, so I like to think, you know, I, I get defensive and I think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. This is not my problem. Um, but as we really think about this issue and look at it a little more deeply, I've got two things for us to consider. The first thing is, if there is injustice in our society... Am I not responsible to do what I can to do my part to make it right? What does that mean? Does that mean political action? Maybe. Does it mean voting for candidates who will treat the poor with justice? Definitely. I'm sure that we might disagree about which candidates that is that treat the poor properly, but That needs to be part of our thinking. What about supporting charities and programs that seek to address injustices in our society and advocate for the powerless? Absolutely. And let me say at this point that if you don't think that the poor are marginalized in our society or are treated unjustly, and you just need to, you need to take a little bit closer look. Because <laughs> we might disagree about which policies or which things that happen or, or, or just to what extent um, things are unjust. But, but we should never be so blind as to claim that there are no problems that need to be addressed. So that's my first response to those of us who feel like, like I sometimes feel that uh, I'm not really oppressing the poor is that we have a measure of responsibility for the sins of our society. And we need to do what we can to seek justice on a societal level. So that's the first thing. The second response for those of us who feel like we are not really guilty in this area is to take a look at this passage from Amos chapter 6. Amos chapter 6, starting with verse... One, he says, "Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure in Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalna and look at it, and go from there to Great Hamath." He says, "You lie on beds adorned with ivory and on lounge." And you lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. So who is Amos talking about here? Who's he he addressing? It's the people who are complacent. They are complacent. They enjoy their nice couches, their music, their wine, and their lotions, but they do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. So who's Joseph? Well, Joseph is another name for the, the nation of Israel, because the two main tribes there, Ephraim and Manasseh were descendants of Joseph. So Joseph is a name for the nation. So it is the nation of Israel that they are supposed to be mourning over. And what ruin is it that they're supposed to be mourning? The nation uh, overall was doing fairly well financially. But they should be mourning over all the people in their society that he's been talking about here who are being trampled by society and the poor and the needy and the powerless who are among them. Their nation includes many who are being oppressed, treated unjustly, and crushed. But these people are complacent, they are just enjoying their lives and ignoring the cause. Of the poor and the needy. As I was uh, preparing this message uh, this last week, I talked to several people uh, from the church here about what they thought uh, were um, the, the temptations to sin in this area that people here at Clearwater Church face. Because what exactly is it in our own society and, and for you people sitting here? What is it that we are tempted to do against the poor? And the answers I got were, were, were pretty consistent. Our temptation is to complacency. Steve Gordon described it to me as all of us living little siloed lives, where we are insulated from even being aware of the needs of the people around us. We occasionally have to drive past a beggar with a cardboard sign at an intersection. Or maybe we catch a glimpse of a homeless camp as we ride by on our bicycles down on the trails. But we do not engage with the poor. We mainly ignore them and their problems. I say we mainly ignore them because we don't do nothing, right, so we're all paying taxes that go to various government programs that are intended to help the poor. And address their problems. And many of us uh, volunteer in different organizations that do things for the poor. And some of us give to different charities and things. And when the holidays come around, uh, we show compassion toward those who have needs. So we're not doing nothing. In fact, I believe that there are some people in our church who are actually doing what God requires of us. And I believe that some of us are not doing what God wants from us in this area. And my question for you is, which group are you in? Which group are you in? Are you doing what God requires of you in regard to how we treat the poor? Are you, through your complacency, contributing to the problem? And that's a very serious question. Think about the words of Amos. God hates and despises your religious practices if you're not getting it right in this area. You cannot say to yourself that you're a good church-going person and you listen to Caleb and you give to the church. Therefore, God is pleased with you. The people in Amos' day listened to Caleb, or something like that. Um, They sang the songs, and God hated it. The problem that Amos addresses is common throughout the prophets. So let's take a few minutes uh, to look at another place where the same issue is addressed in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58. Um, I really wanted to, to look at this whole chapter here. But I've uh, trimmed it down a little bit. But you should definitely read the whole chapter of Isaiah 58. Uh, very powerful stuff from the prophet Isaiah, who, who deals with uh, very similar things to what um, Amos is talking about here. So I'm going to start uh, in verse 4, since we... Uh, just going to skip a little bit of it there, but here we go. Verse 4, why have we fasted? Oh, sorry, this is verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? So here are these people who are practicing their religion. They're fasting in order to show their commitment and dedication to God and to persuade God to uh, be with them and help them. But they've noticed that God is not doing what they want him to do. And so they're frustrated with God. Why have we been doing all these religious things and you're not helping us, God? And God, through the prophet, tells them why he hasn't responded. He says, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. On the very day that they're fasting and trying to show their dedication to God, they're sinning against their fellow men. The prophet says, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? If you want to show your devotion to God, do not do it simply by fasting and praying. If you fast and pray and then you exploit your workers and quarrel and fight, God is not impressed with your religious devotion. We can never cover over our sins by doing religious acts. God wants our religious devotion to be acts of kindness and mercy. Taking a stand against injustice is better than singing a hymn. Helping someone who is oppressed by addiction to find freedom is better than tithing to the church. Sharing your food with the hungry is better than memorizing Bible verses. Providing shelter for the homeless is better than taking communion. And providing clothing for those in need is better than going to a prayer meeting. Of course, God also wants us to sing hymns, give to the church, memorize scripture, and all those other things. But which category does God value most? He values acts of compassion and justice more than religious observance. Isaiah goes on and says, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk. Now there's, that's, that's, that's a phrase that really hits me. When I hear that phrase, the, the yoke of oppression... I think about all the people who are uh, suffering with substance abuse addictions, who are stuck and saddled with that yoke of oppression. Uh, I was talking to another friend uh, after the Thursday service and he said when he thinks of that yoke of oppression, he thinks of people who are uh, trapped in debt, which is another common one in our own society. Helping people with these things is not easy. Helping people who are trapped in these kinds of yokes of oppression. But we have to try to do away with their yoke. But the part that we definitely can control, maybe it's still not easy, but it's under our control, is the pointing finger and malicious talk. Where does that kind of talk come from? Well, very often it comes from people like us who see that these people have made some poor choices that have led them into these addictions, and our compassion for them is gone. But God calls on us to do away with the pointing finger and malicious talk. Let us have compassion on those who are slaves to their addictions even if they are not blameless in the situation. Isaiah goes on, he says, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. So why don't we do this? Why aren't we following God's ways here. For one thing, it's, it's really hard to do this. Um, Isaiah calls on us to spend ourselves in behalf of the hungry. Not just give a few dollars that we won't even miss to the Beans Cafe or something, but to spend yourself in behalf of the hungry. That calls for a commitment So, I don't know at this point whether you're feeling defensive or you're feeling convicted. Um, I, I, I've been flip flopping between defensive and com- convicted as I was uh, prepping this message and studying these things from the prophets. Uh, sometimes I feel like, I don't know, I, 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 I want to defend myself, and other times I've, but I, I feel like I, I'm landing on I'm convicted. I'm convicted by this. And if you're feeling defensive, I challenge you to really take stock of your life and make a sober judgment on whether you are complacent on your nice couch or are mourning over the ruin of the nation around you. I I want to encourage you, uh, if you're married, sit down with your spouse and talk about this, or talk with a friend or something, or maybe just think about it yourself. But here are questions to ask, three questions to ask. The first one is, how are we doing in this area? Or how am I doing? Secondly, uh, what more can we do? And the third question is, what does God expect from us? And uh, those three questions are on the back of your bulletin. I, I put them there as journey group discussion questions. I think each one of those three questions can really uh, spur some real deep thinking and, uh, and discussion. If you ask, what does God expect? How am I doing? And what more could I do? Um, and if you have some ideas on the what more we could do and you have some ideas that you think the church could be doing um, and you have some ideas of things, uh, programs or events that you want to help organize to, to help the church to address these kinds of issues come talk to me. Uh, talk to Brian Whitson, one of us or both of us and, uh, and we'd love to talk with you about how uh, the church might be able to use some of your ideas. But, uh, but there are also things that we can do as individuals. And I challenge you to be thinking about those things. In the passages that we looked at tonight, uh, God is holding up a plumb line to his people. So let's be responsive to the message that he has brought to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your prophet has brought a mighty challenge to us in this, and we are not sure what to do with it. And Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom both to to see the truth of our own lives and also to see the truth of what we can do to make a difference father guide us as we consider these things we ask this in the name of your son jesus amen